If you would turn to Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at uh, verse 26 and uh, the story of Philip and this incredible evangelistic uh, opportunity that he had. So I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at this incredible passage of Scripture. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. Don't you wish that you were sharing your faith? Someone would just say, hey, would you explain Jesus to me? This is what happens to Philip. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of Scripture, and he told him the good news of Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Father God, again we come to you as your people. We've been exploring your church. <clears throat> We've been trying to understand the purpose and the practices of your church. And Lord, this has been a different series because we haven't been dealing with a particular text that you've given us, but it is good for us to know the church, the body, the household of faith that you have placed us in. Lord, it is good for us to uh, live out the practices that you've given us. And so, Father, today we look at uh, your Son's command to go and make disciples of all nations. And to do that, the first step of that, after they've accepted the truth of your word, is to make, uh, have them be baptized. And Father, this is something that in our, in our worlds has become second hat. It's something that has been put by the wayside. Father, even in, in our own church, this is something that we don't do enough. Father, if you're adding to our number daily those who are being saved, then it must be true then that we would be baptizing daily those who are saved. But Lord, we know that it only happens... Uh, every couple months, and that's better than even some. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us the importance of this incredible ordinance you've given us, that we would understand the symbolism behind it, that we would recognize it was your desire for us to do this so that we would bring glory and honor to you, that we would live like you, that people would be able to see as we practice, as you've called us to, that we are Christians and we are called according to your purpose. So, Lord, speak through me this morning that uh, your people will be edified and you will be glorified. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We're in week four of our series that we've entitled Exploring Ecclesiology, looking to understand uh, what the church is all about. And we've spent the first uh, couple weeks talking uh, about, if you will, uh, the purpose of the church. Uh, how is the church to function? How is the church to uh, be uh, the church? What is it to be doing? Uh, what are the things that have to be apparent for a church? Not to be any kind of church, uh, 
uh, but to be a healthy and vibrant church. Now, last week we got from the purposes into, if you will, the practices. And we talked about uh, the practice of church membership. That even though we're a part of the invisible body, the universal church, all believers are a part of that. That God calls us to be a part of a local church, committed and held accountable to that group of individuals that are meeting in a certain time, in a certain geographical setting, uh, so that they may be edified and built up uh, into, as I prayed, the household of God. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of these other practices Uh, This week we look at baptism. Next week uh, we uh, are going to be spending time around uh, the Lord's table. And we're going to talk about the significance of the second ordinance that God uh, gives through His Son Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And that is communion or the Lord's Supper. Then we're going to talk about church leadership and the role that that your elders have and pastors have as as leading the church. And and the role that they play in, in raising up a group of godly men and women under the a great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. And then we're going to talk about uh, the practice of church discipline. And we're going to talk about what, well, what the church is to do, what we are called to do as individuals when, when one of us is wayward, when one of us walks away from the faith or begins to live contrary to what the Word of God says. And then at the end of this, uh, these weeks, we're going to go back to how do we then live these things out? How do we uh, go from what we've learned and applying all the principles that we've learned, going back and saying, now, what has God called Village Bible Church to do? Uh, not just any church. What has God called us to in the specific area of ministry that he's called us to? And so that's what our desire is in exploring uh, this series but in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about two activities that God, uh, that Christ himself called us to. The first one is baptism. Baptism is known as the ordinance of initiation. This was a, a command that Jesus Christ gave that welcomed the new believer into the church. It was the process to be done in a singular fashion. It was only to be done once. But it was to say and identify that the believer in their public acknowledgement of baptism was saying, I'm with God. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. The second ordinance that Jesus Christ gives in the New Testament that we celebrate is the Lord's Supper. And they say that that is the ordinance of continuation. Not a one-time event, not a one-time practice, but it is to go on. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We're to do it when? Until he comes. It's to be ongoing. And so the normal practice is the first Sunday of the month we dedicate to gathering around the Lord's table to participate in a remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done. These are symbols. These ordinances are commands that Jesus Christ has given, but they are symbols of something greater. Now, we live in a world that are full of symbols, and and symbols are important things. Symbols give us an understanding of something uh, that is being represented that is greater than the symbol itself. If we were to look uh, to the world, we would see, you know, as Americans, we see the symbol of our flag. And we look at the 50 stars on the flag, and we say that represents the 50 states that we have in this great country. And we look to uh, other uh, flags and other signs that we see, symbols, the peace symbol. Uh, Whether you speak English or Arabic, whether you speak French or Italian, the peace flag is universal as a sign of peace. The white flag of surrender, whether you're from Asia, America, or from Europe, you recognize that the white flag is a flag saying, I give up, I surrender. Now there are some uh, symbols that are incredibly powerful for positive reasons. But if you were to see a red, white, and black flag with a black line making uh, two distinct marks, knowing as you look at that flag, we call it, of course, a swastika, that that symbol comes to us and it brings up and conjures up all kinds of images, whether of Hitler or concentration camps or the idea of war. Symbols are a powerful thing. Well, the Christian church is full of symbols. Of course, we have the symbols of baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
But as I look behind me, we have a symbol that identifies who we are. A cross, two pieces of wood. There's nothing important about that. And yet for us, a Christian symbol like the cross tells us we are followers of Jesus Christ. And we aren't just followers of a man who taught some good stories and gave us some good principles, but a man who was God and who gave up his life on a cross. Symbols are powerful. For me, probably the greatest symbol of all Christianity is anytime I see a picture or a representation of the stone that is rolled away. Because while the cross pays my penalty for sin, uh, any good man could have laid down their life for me. And I would identify with that. Of course, we know that as we drive down the road, you'll see someone who has lost their life. And, and many times they'll put up a cross. When my brother died, and in, in fact, for about 15 years on Route 30, there's a cross. There was a cross there that said, this is where Chris Padal uh, and uh, had his life ended in a car crash. And so a cross is great and wonderful. It represents death. It represents uh, so much. Uh, but Jesus Christ is more than a cross. Because Jesus Christ being God, being the perfect man, he rose from the grave. And while all those that are represented with crosses who have lost their lives remain in the grave, Jesus Christ rose from the grave triumphantly. And so we look at the symbol today of baptism. And the thing we always have to be careful with when we talk about symbols is that we never want to make them greater than what they are. And when we make a symbol greater than what it is, it can be damaging to us. A symbol is never to be the thing. Notice with me for a moment, if I said our religion was built on this piece of wood, not what it symbolizes, but this is our religion. A lot of you would say, you know what? My religion's worth more than that. My faith is based on more than that. But when we make the symbol of that wood uh, our faith, when we make the symbol of that wood our salvation, we hurt ourselves because we don't have faith in anything more than a couple pieces of wood fashioned in the shape of a cross. I usually wear a wedding ring, but I had an accident uh, at work a couple weeks ago. And it reminds me sometimes how when symbols get in the way, they can be painful. We were working on a new ceiling in our offices, and uh, I was on a ladder. And I was going to step down from the ladder and I missed the next step. And trying to make sure I did not fall, I grabbed with my left hand the top of the ladder. The only thing that caught was my ring. And that's the last time I saw the bottom half of my ring. It went well into my finger. It got in the way. Now Amanda told me that marriage to her might be painful. I never thought that would be the case. What was even more difficult was to get that symbol of my love and affection for Amanda off of my finger. Because now it was cut open. Now I had to try to figure out a way to get it or to lose that ring forever. And so a group of my employees and I were pulling it off as it was swelling up. And we were able to take it off. But even to this point, it's too swollen to even put a ring on. And yet sometimes symbols get in the way. Sometimes symbols can hurt. Sometimes they can cause us to have a different understanding of what being used in a different way than what we, they were intended. My ring was never to stop me from falling. No matter how great the, the ring maker was, it was never to keep me from falling off a ladder. And when I tried to make it that, it caused pain and it brought great hurt to me. My greatest story that I remember as a child of the powerful nature of baptism, this incredible symbol of Christ and our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. I was a young boy, and one of the first remembrances of, of Christian baptism, an elder of this small country church that we were attending, he was probably in his mid-80s, and he got down into the baptismal tank, as, as we have here, 
And I remember the elders started saying, I feel the Spirit of the Lord upon me. I thought that was kind of weird because this guy was a pretty quiet guy. And he says, I've never felt like this before. I feel the Spirit running through my veins. God is up to something great. And he says, I can feel it. It's like a pulse rising through me. He said, I'm not very charismatic, but I feel the Spirit's leading me today. And you can tell this guy's becoming electric. I mean, he is really getting excited. And we didn't know what to think of that until his wife yells out, Ray, Ray, not Ray Pergodich, by the way, Ray, Ray, your hearing aid. You've got your hearing aid on still. And of course, the old hearing aids had batteries. And he was getting a charge. (laughs) Symbols can be powerful things. They can be powerful. And so we look at this powerful symbol of baptism. And it doesn't take a battery to make it powerful. In fact, to be honest with you, it is a very simplistic uh, picture, as I said, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this symbol this morning, I know there's a lot of differences in the world of Christianity when it comes to baptism. We could talk about infant baptism. We could talk about believer's baptism. We can talk about dry baptism, sprinkling, uh, pouring, immersion. We can talk about the issue of uh, does baptism save or does it just symbolize? Uh, These are questions that Christians have struggled with for a long time. And my uh, desire is, is to look at what God's Word says about these things so that we understand as we go out and are part of the purpose of the church to go and make disciples and to baptize them, we know why we're doing what we're doing and we can rejoice in it because it's a beautiful thing. And so the first thing we need to look at this morning, before we even get to our, our outline, is we need to understand that baptism... That baptism does nothing to save. Just write that somewhere so we recognize that because you're going to hear me give a passionate plea for you to follow God's command and be baptized. But within that passionate plea, I want you to understand that what I'm not doing is going beyond what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures make it clear, baptism has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. Uh, the Bible makes it clear, of course, in, in John chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles there for a moment to John chapter 3. If you're in the book of Acts, go back to your left, uh, to the book of John. In John chapter 3, a famous passage of Scripture, before one of the most famous passages of all time uh, in the Bible, John chapter 3 verse 15 reminds us of something as we look at baptism. And this is what it says. Starting in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's a, it's a giving of, uh, the uh, illusion of the idea there that Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. And he says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Let's look at that. It says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. It doesn't say anyone uh, who believes and is close enough to water will have eternal life. Aren't you glad that you don't have to be baptized to be saved? I would hate for uh, someone to be up in a plane where there's not all that much water who wants to be saved and and, and they have the person sitting next to them says, gee whiz, I'm sorry, we just don't have water around. How about all our brothers and uh, sisters of humanity that find themselves in in a uh, desert where there is no water? Does it say uh, whosoever or everyone who believes and and it doesn't live in a desert but lives in a more uh, temperate climate uh, will be saved? No. In fact, uh, we could even go to Mars if we wanted to, and they, they go back and forth on whether there's water on Mars. Aren't you glad that if for some reason God sent you to Mars, you could still be saved? You don't need water. We need to be very careful that as we look at this sign of baptism, that we understand the importance of it, but we also recognize its limitations. It is a symbol. It is a sign. It is not the end result of our salvation. It's the end result of our salvation. It is not the means of our salvation. 
We need to recognize that. And so as you listen to me proclaim the importance of this subject, the importance of the sign, recognize that this sign isn't our salvation. And just as much as you who have wedding rings on, your, your life and your marriage are not built into that symbol that is on your finger. It's just a symbol. It's just a sign. I have my wedding ring off right now. Does that make me any less married? No. It's just that I don't have the sign that articulates that uh, as clearly as it would if I was wearing it. Baptism is a sign. So we need to recognize that it's not necessary for salvation. But God makes it all the more clear how important it is in spite of that. In fact, write this down. There are more than a hundred times in the New Testament that baptism is spoken of. Over a hundred times. It's spoken of in seven different contexts. In fact, it isn't just the issue of water baptism, but there's the Spirit's baptism. There's the baptism of John. There's the baptism of Christ. These different contexts of different types of baptism that take place. The issue that I'll be talking about, water baptism, is shared more than 39 times in the New Testament. And so if the Scriptures make it clear through the abundance of verses that are placed on it, we need to understand what makes it so important. And so we have to look at uh, what we have in our outline this morning. It brings us to our first point. Baptism is a mandate that we have received. Baptism is a mandate that we have received. I want you to write this down somewhere. Baptism in the Bible is always a command. It is a command that is called on to be followed. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't extra credit. This is, if you will, the first command that every new believer that comes to Jesus Christ, bows the knee to Jesus Christ. God has given them a mandate, and the mandate is now be baptized. Now get baptized. But we know that not all commands are obeyed. And I know in in this service, and of course in the second service, there will be those that I'll be talking to who have never been baptized, who have never followed that command. And the question uh, may be uh, brought up and people say, well, why not? If it's a command, why, why would we not do them? Well, I want to give you just a couple of thoughts on why maybe you haven't been baptized. Number one is ignorance. You just don't know what baptism is all about. And so you want to listen today. You want to hear what uh, the Word of God says about this incredible uh, sign of baptism. Number two, fear. Maybe you're afraid to be baptized. You say, well, what would cause you to be afraid of baptism? Well, if you have a fear of water. My grandmother had an incredible fear of water. Um, She would never take baths. She would only take uh, showers. Water had to come down like the rain, never sitting in in a bath or anything like that. So that, that happens. There's a fear of water. There's a fear of speaking in front of people. Uh, one of the things that I've heard from uh, especially many of our uh, ladies is, is the issue of modesty. It's nothing very attractive, if you will, of coming out of, of uh, water and your clothes just uh, st- sticking to every part of your body. That's, that's, I can understand that. Uh, you're not going to see me at any water parks or uh, swimming pools if I know any of you guys are going to be there. You ain't going to see me uh, out uh, flaunting my stuff, if you will. So I, I understand the issue of, of, of uh, kind of the self-consciousness, and that's big. Uh, but these fears should never keep you from obeying. There are things that uh, we can always be afraid of. Uh, think about this. God told us to go and make disciples. We are to reach out to people. We are to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sometimes that can be scary. Sometimes that can create fear in our lives. But, but do I have an excuse to say, well, it's scary, God. I can't do it. I'll leave it to someone else. God says, no, it's my command for you. Do it. Sometimes commands aren't easy to follow. And so what we've tried to do here at Village Bible Church is not lessen the need for baptism and say, you know what, if you have those fears, then you don't have to be baptized. But if you've noticed, when we baptize people, uh, we usually put up a screen. Uh, As soon as you come out of the water, you're behind the screen. You don't have to worry about all that sticky clothes stuff. We know that not everybody's willing to give a testimony. 
And in fact, in the New Testament, all we see are articulations, affirmations of the relationship they have with Jesus Christ. And so a testimony is optional, but Pastor Keith will run through a list of affirmations. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe you are in need of grace? And and all we ask of the individual is not to give a big oratory, uh, but just a simple, yes, I do. We want to make sure that there are no man-made restrictions that keep people from being baptized. And so if you have a fear, if, if, if the issue of water is a deep fear for you, we'll figure something out. If you like jello, we'll baptize you in jello. It'll work. You know? I just lost some people with that. Bill Cosby would be a big fan of jello. So we'll figure it out. But we want to see people baptized, not making excuses on why they can't. The next one is laziness. Just like last week when we talked about membership, some of you say, I want to be baptized. I'm planning on being baptized. I just haven't gotten around to doing it. We want you to. In fact, we're going to give an opportunity today uh, for people to be baptized. At the end of uh, my message, I'm going to say, is there anybody who wants to be baptized? And, and we're not doing that to, to gauge the, the message, but an opportunity for anybody to come and say, I have not been baptized yet and I want to be baptized. And that's not our normal procedure. We usually go through, uh, have a class. We have a class once a month. But we don't want to keep anybody from following this command. And so we want to give you an opportunity today to come and be baptized. Yes, that means your clothes are going to get wet, but I'll tell you something. What does it mean to get wet for Jesus? What a great thing. He went to the cross for us. Can we not go home with some wet clothes one Sunday? Just once. The final thing is disobedience. The book of James says that when we know what is right and we do not do it, it is sin. I want you to know something. God makes it clear in His Word. We are called to be baptized. You know it. I know it. You can make all the excuses you want. But the Scriptures make it clear it is something that is to be done. You say, Tim, are you telling me that I'm sinning if I'm not being baptized? Well, it depends on how you want to define the word sin. If a man knows what is right and does not do it, James says he sins. Don't get mad at me about that. Talk with James about it. The Bible says that baptism is to be done. It is commanded. And if we don't do it, yes, we sin. Does that mean God is going to wreak incredible havoc in your life? No, I don't think so. But I do think that there are some real uh, struggles uh, for us when we make a decision that we're unwilling, for whatever reason, to identify ourselves with Christ. One thing I've always told people that have struggled with baptism is if we uh, are unwilling to associate with Christ, Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. I go to the positive of that. I like the positive better. If you associate with me, if you accept me before men, I will accept you before my Father. I like that. I want to get to heaven and I want my, my Father in heaven to say, or Jesus in heaven to say, Tim accepted me before men. And one way that we can do it, one of many ways we can do that is through baptism. So we need to recognize that. That whatever issues we have, whatever struggles we have, we need to ask God to move in our hearts to change us and to make us uh, obedient to the call that He has. Why is this so important? Well, there's some significant reasons why baptism is important. Number one, it was uncompromisingly commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Great Commission, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 28 tells us the following. And we've heard this numerous times, of course. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. In in the Christian world today, what we do is we, we get them saved and we start teaching them. And we miss point number two. And what we say is, is baptism is between you, uh, it's between the believer and God. And the believer has to feel that the time is right. Let me tell you something. Uh, For those that are dads around here, uh, I hate it when my children, uh, I tell them to do something. They say, but dad, I, I don't feel like doing it right now. I said, wait a minute. This wasn't a suggestion. This is a command. Get up and help your mom. I don't care if you feel like doing it or not. You're going to do it. Whether I have to move you physically to do it or you do it in your own free will and volition. 
And yet we make baptism something that's commanded. We say, well, I'll maybe get to it. It's something, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I don't like to do it. This is not a suggestion. Jesus Christ commanded it. And we need to understand that it's commanded and it cannot be compromised. I love what Acts 22.16 says. Acts 22 is, of course, a uh, retelling of Paul's Damascus Road experience. And he's telling it to a crowd. And in Acts 22, uh, verse 16, I'll just give you some context. It says, uh, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me, verse 11 says. A man named Ananias came to me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then Ananias said, The God of our forefathers, or God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now notice what he says in verse 16. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized. There are some people that need to hear the words of Ananias this morning. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. It's something that we need to do. The second reason why this baptism is so important is it was uniquely practiced by our Lord. I want you to understand that the whole life of Jesus is a model. As we look at Jesus' life, we as followers of Christ look to his life and we say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, I want to go. Take a look at the book of Matthew. Take a look at the book of Mark. And at the beginning of those gospels, you will see the baptism of Jesus Christ. At 30 years of age, Jesus doesn't start any ministry. He doesn't get involved in anything. The gospel writers only talk about his early life as a child. And then the first thing that we see is the preaching of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. So the ministry, the life ministry of Jesus starts with baptism. But if you look at Matthew and Mark, you'll see at the end of those great gospels that it ends with baptism as well. Because in the Great Commission, he calls every follower of his to be baptized. So it's practiced by our Lord. This is something he preached. This isn't Paul, just Paul's thoughts. This isn't my thoughts. This is the Lord's thoughts. He practiced what he preached. Next, it was universally administered to Christians entering the church. Here are some following passages. I'll just give them to you. You can look them up later of the frequent times in the early church that baptism was cited or was uh, practiced. Acts 2.38, Acts 8.12 through 16, and then also in verses 36 through 38. Acts 9.18, Acts 10.47 and 48, Acts 16.15, and also in verse 33. Acts 18.8, Acts 19.5, Acts 22.16. And that's just the mentions of baptisms in the book of Acts. We could go as we will in a couple moments to the book of Romans chapter 6. We can talk about uh, the Paul, Paul's writings in the pastoral letters that deal with baptism. Peter's writings of baptism in his letters to the church. Baptism was something that was practiced all the time. You look at the early writings of some of the early church fathers and they would say that an unbaptized believer was an oxymoron. Or, I'm sorry, a ba- uh, yeah, an unbaptized believer was an oxymoron. It, it, it didn't make sense. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you were baptized. It was just a given. The final thing that we need to understand is that it was unapologetically, it should be unapologetically connected to our conversion. For most of our members, you know that the issue of baptism has come front and center to us as a church. As I talked about last week, we talked about uh, that as we're working through our new constitution and bylaws, the elders have proposed that one of the, uh, probably one of the largest changes to our constitution is, is our focus on baptism. 
And the reason why isn't because we're just wanting to make up rules and, and, and thoughts together and say, you know what, let's just make it more difficult for these people. Let, let's, let's just start adding rules and regulations. No, my friends, the desire of the elders was to be biblical when it came to the issue of baptism. We want to be right when it comes to it. And so we want to make sure that God's command of baptism comes before uh, what we would see as a secondary issue of being a member in the local church. You see, baptism identifies not only yourself with Jesus Christ, but it identifies yourself with all Christians at all times, saying just like those in the first century that entered into water and were baptized, I too, in the year 2009, are being baptized to associate myself with Christ and His people. And so why would we associate ourselves with a local church, within a local church, and say, hey, I'm with Village Bible Church of Sugar Grove, when we are unwilling to be baptized first to be associated with the universal church? Some of you may disagree with me, but to me it seems a little out of step. We need to deal with step two before we deal with step three. The issue has even come up in regards, and we'll talk more about this next week, uh, but the place of baptism with communion. And there's been a lot of discussion, lively discussion in regards to it. And the elders have loved every aspect of it. That you as uh, the membership of the church have opened up the word and looked to what the God's word has to say. And, and we've been enjoying the time through that. But we want to get this thing right. We want to do this right. And if the Bible says all that it is, that it's commanded by Jesus and practiced by Jesus and it was administered by the church in the book of Acts, then it's probably important that we do those things. And so we want to be unapologetically connected when it comes to the conversion experience, that that's a part of it. And so what you're going to hear from Village Bible Church time and time again unapologetically is that you get saved it's time to be baptized. It's time to get baptized. You're going to hear us now. We never want it to be a guilt-ridden thing. And there's been even some questions. This could make us legalistic. I don't know. I get up every Sunday and I preach pretty, pretty passionately about you not falling into sexual immorality and you not lying and, and you not putting other gods before yourself. And nobody calls me legalistic because God commands those things, Right? And you guys say, and you encourage me, preach it, brother, get, get going. At least Bruce Wyrock does. And so, and so there's no legalism there. God says it, I am to do it, and that ends it, right? Well, that's where we're at as elders. And we don't want it to be something that's legalistic. We don't want it to be something that pushes people away. But we want to be clear that the Bible says, you're a follower of mine, you need to be baptized. If you're struggling with that, as, as a person in the church, the elders have said numerous times, we want to talk with you about it. We want you to understand our heart behind it. We want to be and look like the church in Acts. And we want to do as they did in the ways that God has commanded us to. So the next thing we need to look at is uh, baptism is to be done. We've looked at some of the significant ways that the scriptures talk about baptism. It is to be done because of the meaning it represents. Now, what does it mean to have a person who gets into a tank of water and gets wet in front of a whole bunch of other Christians? It sounds like a weird hazing experience. Okay, hey, the new guy's here. Let's take him and put him into a tank of water and let's get him wet. He, 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 that sounds like fun. Yeah, that, 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 that'll get him real good. My right, friends, baptism is not a rushing for a fraternity or sorority. And it seems odd that a tank of water and a pastor or, or some other uh, mature Christian in the water with them dunking them seems like an activity that would happen on a youth group uh, outing uh, to a water park. But for some reason, God says that this is important and this is to be done. And whether or not he told us the importance of it or not, if God says, I want you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to wear polka dots on the first and third Sundays of the month. Now, I'm not going to give you any reason why you need to do that. I just want you to do it. Can I tell you something? We would have no recourse but to do it because God says it. I'm to do it, and that ends it. But God says, okay, I know it seems a little odd dunking people into water. It seems a little out of step. So this is why I want you to do it. Notice what the meaning that is represented here. Number one, as we do this, it shows the world our obedience to Scripture. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my... Let's say it again. If you love me, you will obey my commands. As, as we are baptized, we are saying we love Jesus. Even if it means we've got to get in some water, which may be a bit humiliating to us. Uh, maybe it means that we've got to bring an extra pair of clothes to church. Maybe it means we may have to fight some fears and, and, and maybe uh, speak publicly in front of some people, even if it's something very short. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. I'll tell you that verse is the verse that I teach my sons because it seems that it covers everything. You know, I tell my children, uh, all of them, Luke's still a little foggy on on the issue, but the older two are getting it. If you love Jesus, you'll do what he says. You know, you could put together the whole, the whole Christian life in that verse. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll do what I'm asking you to do. If you love me, you'll say no to sin and worldly lust and follow godliness. If you love me. See, some of us aren't doing what we need to because we just don't love Jesus. Or maybe our, our love relationship with Jesus is, is, is on the back burner. And so when Jesus says to do something, we shouldn't even have to be told what to do a second time because we love Jesus so much. And I know in my own life there are times where I don't do what Jesus says. And it always comes back to that I'm not loving Jesus as I'm supposed to. I'm not doing the things that should become a part of habit for me that I'm running away from them. We need to understand that as we are baptized, we are saying, I believe what the Word of God says. I believe it to be true. I believe it to be my authority. And so when the Bible says I am to be baptized, I want the whole world to know I am following the Scriptures. The second thing that we see is that it involves our oneness with Christ. When we are baptized, we are telling the world, I am with Jesus. Have you noticed that we spend more time telling people who we are with in a presidential campaign than we as Christians ever say who we are with when it comes to Jesus Christ? When was the last time you wore a big uh, button that I I saw on Labor Day? People were at an event I was catering, and they had buttons for these people. And, And I remember one guy was going through the line. He says, I'm with this guy, and he's running for Congress. And, and I remember the lady said, well, I'm the lady that scoops up the baked beans and I really don't care. I was like, wow, that, she does not represent 5B's catering. just wants you to know she's a volunteer. But what she was, as I learned afterwards, there were tons of politicians at this event. And everybody wanted her to know, I'm with him. He's important. He's my friend. He's the answer that I'm looking for. When was the last time you as a believer said, I am with Jesus. He's the answer. He's the one that can fix the world's problems. And yet that's what baptism is all about. Do you know in the first century, in the book of Acts, when Rome uh, is, is, is just being run amok with uh, a man named Nero who hated the Christians, that history tells us, both secular and biblical historians tell us, that the, if you wanted to be persecuted as a believer, you didn't just have to say, I was a follower of Jesus. They, they would allow that. Okay, so you like his teaching. You're not going to do anything about it. But persecution came after you were baptized. Did you know that? Did you know in Middle Eastern cultures, it isn't so much just to be a follower of Jesus that is the big thing, but it is when you enter into the waters of baptism that start getting you the persecution. Why? Because baptism is the sign that says, I am with him. I am with Jesus. If Jesus will take me as his word says, then I am with him and we are together. He lives inside me through the gift of his Holy Spirit. Baptism says, I am his, as the hymn says, and he is mine. The final thing that baptism represents is our offering before God, our offering to God. It represents a life that is yielded to Christ. As, as I go about living my married life, I'm constantly reminded as I preach here that it wasn't too long ago, 1997, I was standing here in front of even some of you, and I was saying, I'm with Amanda Bedall. Now, I had already told Amanda that. I had communicated that to her very early on, and usually that's when they got scared away. But she stayed with me. 
And I said, I I just don't want you to know this, Amanda, that I love you and that I'm with you. But I want to tell the whole world that. And that's what baptism is all about. But I also am reminded of the vows that took place on this stage. That that sign, through that sign of the wedding ceremony, as my dad was there uh, leading that ceremony, he looked at Amanda and he looked at I and he says, I want you to make some vows. Do you uh, commit to this and that? Well, in the good times and the bad, in sickness and in health, if you've got money or you don't, are you committed to these things? It wasn't just a ceremony we got together and said, everybody looked, oh, Tim finally found a woman. That's good. Praise God. It was some commitments. There was some yielding that took place. When we enter into the waters of baptism, we say, God, it's not that I just associate with you. It's not that I just want the world to know that I'm in love with you. It is saying to the world, this is the first of many commands in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to do as you say. It's a yielding to it. It's taking the great praise song, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. When we're baptized, that is what we are saying to our God in heaven. God, I am yours for you to do what you will with my life. The next thing we need to look at this morning is the proper mode of baptism. Now, one thing I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about, so I'll just give a statement to it. Is, is the issue of, of course, we believe here at Village Bible Church in believer's baptism. We don't believe in infant baptism. And, and there is, of course, a, a biblical understanding of how you can get to infant baptism, the, the idea of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the idea that uh, circumcision of the people of Israel as a covenant sign uh, of the community of, of faith uh, was done for the male children of the, Israel, uh, of the nation of Israel. Uh, There's a lot of things we can look at. But when it comes to the practice of the church, we're called to look at the New Testament. We're called to look what the Bible says. And nowhere in the New Testament uh, do we see infants being baptized. Now you can go to some of the household uh, passages uh, that where there are households that are baptized. And, And yeah, there's some speculation where some of those children... Maybe, but it seems throughout all of the New Testament, faith was a prerequisite for baptism. An articulation of the faith, an articulation that I believe was of great importance. If you're in my Apostles' Creed class, we we are learning that the Apostles' Creed uh, was a baptismal affirmation of the faith. I believe. And in the second part of the second century, just less than a hundred years Uh, after many of the apostles lived. One of the great leaders during that time, Hippolytus, said that the desire of the church was that the baptized individual would be asked, do you believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth? And the one who was baptized says, I believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried? They would say, I believe. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And he would continue to go on. This was something that was important. A child can't affirm those things. Now I recognize that there are some, I myself was baptized in a Presbyterian church as an infant. But I want to make some things very clear. Number one, uh, infant baptism, whether it's done in the Roman Catholic Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church or the Lutheran Church, it does not save. It does not take away any original sin. There's nowhere. To be able to come up with that in Scripture, you will never find that in Scripture. And if we want to be biblical on this baptism thing, we have to recognize that just because someone long time ago said, hey, this is how it works, it just doesn't go that way. It doesn't do that. Now, I'm not saying that I'm all against, you know, we dedicate babies. And in many ways, it's a very dry, it's a dry infant baptism. The problem is, is that if you start adding things to those things, number one, you miss the significance of it. We're going to talk about that in a moment. You miss the significance of what is being done. You are identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. And, And if it's my parents who are identifying them, that's important. We do that with baby dedications Uh, But we miss the point of my own ownership of that. 
And so we need to understand that this idea of believer's baptism is clearly the one that we see throughout the New Testament. And I know that may offend some, uh, but you are in a Bible church with Baptist roots. You should expect that, I guess. So the second thing we need to understand about this proper mode is that it is done by immersion. It is done by immersion. Now you say, well, who cares how it's done? Well, but the Bible wants it to be done a certain way because it's a symbol. And if a symbol is going to be used in a certain way, then it needs to be done. You know, we don't say, uh, I've done some weddings now, and I would be thrown back a little bit if at the time of the exchange of the ring, someone said, you know, I don't want to have a ring. I want to keep my fingers nice and clean, and I I don't want to wear a ring. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do an exchange of the earring. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put an earring in and that's going to symbolize my uh, connection with my wife. I'll say, you know, no, we're going to stick with the ring here, buddy. That's the way we do things. Why? Because there's symbolism. There's an understanding uh, of the idea of a ring. And maybe the symbolism will change at some point, but we've got to be very careful as the symbolism of Christian baptism never changes because the Bible makes it clear that it is to be done. The Bible makes it clear time and time again that Jesus went into the Jordan River to be baptized, that John the Baptist would only go to places where there was plenty of water to be baptized. In Acts chapter 8, it says they went down into the water. There are times and times uh, in the Scriptures where it is articulated that this idea of immersion is of greatest importance. Now, there are times where immersion can't be done. Someone is sick, someone is ill, someone's in a a hospital bed. The mode is not the end game, but it is the one that best represents. Now, if a wife said, you know what, (laughs) If, if the ring doesn't work for my husband, I'm okay with that. If he identifies himself with an earring and I like that, that's between you two. I'll let you do it, I guess. It's out of step, but I'll let you do it. There are times where we will not immerse but as, as long as we can, we're going to. I want to share with you. Some people say, well, that's not how my church did it because I was Lutheran or I was Presbyterian. I want you to hear what the church fathers and leaders of the church said. Tertullian in A.D. 200 said, we are baptized by immersion. Cyril, bishop of Jerusalem in A.D. 348 said, the body is to be dipped fully in water. Vitigra said this, the act of baptizing is the immersion of believers into water. Thus it is to be performed just as it was with Christ as well as the apostles. Let's talk about some of the uh, uh, leaders. George Whitfield, a Methodist, commenting on Romans 6.4 says, It is certain that the words of our text is an allusion of the manner that baptism is to be done by immersion. Conabare and Howison, who are Episcopalians, said this, This passage cannot be understood unless it is understood that the primitive and first century practice of baptism was done by immersion. John Calvin, of course, the Presbyterian, said the very word baptize, however, signifies immersion. And it is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient Christian church. Martin Luther, of course, the Lutherans. I could wish that the baptized should be totally immersed according to the meaning of the word as well as the practice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Philip Schaff, a Lutheran, said, Immersion and not sprinkling was unquestionably the original form of baptism. This is shown by the meaning of the Greek word and analogy of the baptism of John, which was performed in the river Jordan. Immersion was the, was the understood practice of how we are to be baptized. Not just of Baptists, but as you have just heard, of all leaders of almost every mainline denomination. Why is that? We need to look at the word. The word baptized literally is a transliterated Greek word, baptizo. This was a word that literally meant to immerse or to submerge. Transliterated means that it doesn't have an English word for it. The Greek word baptizo, they said, well, what's a word for baptism? We need to have a word to baptize. What is it? And they said, well, there's no English word that gives us that understanding. You know, they could have, I guess, said to take a dip or something like that. It didn't seem to work. So what did they do? They said, let's just make it an English word. And they transliterated it, baptism, or to baptize. This word was used by people who dyed fabric. If you had dye, of course, you put the dye into the water, and you put it together, and you mix the water up, and you pull it out, and the shirt's a new color. But to do that, you have to submerge the garment. 
to baptize the garment. This idea of submerging or immersing is an important understanding. When we're baptized, we need to understand we symbolize our death to sin. You need to write that down. We see some symbolism, and that is our death to sin. We need to understand that as we symbolize our death and sin, we see our burial with Christ. And finally, it reminds us of our resurrection to the new life. And so we have death to sin, burial with Christ, and resurrection and new life. So what that means is we are being dunked. As we are going down, we are telling the world, I am dying to my sin. It's over. It's going down. As we are buried, we are saying that Christ, because of His atoning death on the cross, went to the grave for me to put my, uh, my sin and my death to death, if you will, one last time. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? The burial of Christ was beginning to deal with that. And then, of course, as we come out of the water, we are saying, I am not the sinner that I was before, but now being saved by grace and articulating to the world, I am a new man, resurrected to a new life. There's significance that is to it as well. The symbolism, but significance. All baptism should be done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Very quickly, Matthew 28 says, We are to baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Why is that? The Father is the provider of life. The Son is the price that was paid for our new life. And the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers the new life. And so we need to have a triune baptism that takes place. Let me close with this final point. What are we to do with all this? What are we to do with all this? What is our mission to be? Let me just share very four, four very quick things because my time is up. The first thing we need to do is we need to communicate about baptism in a biblically and faithful manner. We need to articulate to our people the importance of baptism. So we do that. When you want to be baptized, normally what we will do is we'll have a class We'll talk with you through the details of it. We want to make sure we teach this. We want to make sure it's right in our documents as well. And we have a distinctive paper that many of our members have seen on the issue of baptism. And it's about six or seven pages long, articulating our position on baptism. We want to communicate it in a clear way. One of the questions that's brought up is, what about kids? We have another document that is called Preparing Young People for Baptism. And we want to make sure that our children aren't just rushed into baptism because mom or dad tells them to or because they see their friend do it and they think that's cool. But we have a class that is led by mom or dad that they work through the details of that to know and understand what baptism is. We want to get this thing right. Number two, we want to celebrate baptisms more frequently. If we are uh, reaching people for Christ, then we should be having all the more baptisms going on. It shouldn't just be happening once every uh, couple months. It should be happening all the time. People, as we reach people for Christ and as they come to know Christ, we need to be baptizing them. And so it needs to be happening uh, all the time. Next, we need to concentrate more on the spiritual nature of baptism. We need to understand this isn't just a physical act of water, but it's something greater than that. And it's something that identifies us with Christ and identifies us with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, we need to challenge each other to live out our baptism. You say, how do I do that? Every time someone is baptized, they're saying, I identify with Christ. Have you thought about that lately? Are you identifying yourself with Jesus Christ? They say, I'm dead to sin. I no longer want to live the life of sin. Do you say that? Even though you've been baptized years ago, can you say, yes, Lord, I want to reaffirm my baptism, that I want to be dead to sin. Can you say, I want to be resurrected in the newness of life. When was the last time you said, God, make me like new again. Make me new again that I can walk in your ways and pursue the things that you've called me to. Let me follow your commands. And this is something that we need to challenge one another with. One of the things that people in the early church were challenged by all the time was their baptismal affirmations. You say you believe this. You say you you articulated these things. Are they true in your life? We need to challenge one another. With a couple minutes I have left, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask if there is anyone who wants to follow the command today uh, to be baptized. We're going to take a couple moments. We'll head to ABF here in a moment. We're going to take a couple moments and pray. And I'm going to ask, and I'm not going to take a long time, but if there is, 
I'm going to have Pastor Keith come and he's going to baptize uh, that individual because uh, we want you to follow the command. So let's pray and then we will see. Father God, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this gift of baptism. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not been baptized, who has a clear and, and solid understanding of you in the sense that they are sinners and you are a savior, if they recognize that they have been saved by grace and not by works, if they recognize their need to follow your commands, And Father, I pray that that you would enlighten their hearts today to be baptized. Lord, I pray that we would become on fire for uh, this issue of baptism, not so that it can divide us as a congregation, but that we can be true to what your word says and be passionate about what you were passionate about, uh, to command what you've commanded, nothing more but nothing less. Father, I pray that we as a church would understand the need for these symbols, that we would rejoice in the, in the administering of these symbols. Next week, as we look at your table, that we would recognize the continuing nature of what you've called us to, to remember. But today, Lord, we focus on that first step of obedience, of following you. So, Lord, I pray that we will do that, so that you brought glory, you brought honor, so that we can praise you in all that we say and do. So, Lord, take us from this place, living in response to the baptism that we've had, so that you may be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.